How you doing? What's up? Howdy. No, no, we're doing New York. We're doing New York. I can't do New York. I can do North Carolina. (laughs) Oh my God. (gasps) Well, you do you. Um, (laughs) Welcome everybody to another week of Case Files with Kat. And Ashley. That wasn't your North Carolina. And Ashley. There you go. God. Oh, weird. That's hey, how everybody. I used to talk before I moved to the city. The big I had a city. thick accent. Like, it doesn't even sound real. But I did have it. Like, it comes out in arguments. Like, if I'm arguing with someone, like, a real argument, or I'm, like, real excited about something, it just random words will still come out. I slowly lost it because kids started making fun of me when I moved sure. to the city. Um, to the city. Yeah, so anyways. <laughs> it's a real accent. Oh my gosh. It's probably why I can't pronounce words right. So you can't, this is all, it explains everything. <laughs> everything. I mean, I was born in a barn, so I mean, that should have explained everything. Like Jesus. Okay, yeah. so we are, um, we are going to have a really long story tonight. So I'm going to just ask you the question of the week, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I'm totally not sure. Unprepared. Huh? Oh, I just said I'm unprepared. You? You, yeah, you are unprepared? Know, this never sure. happens. Seriously. Though, because it's usually like, oh, God, I didn't look at it. I wasn't ready for it. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm just happy I have it actually pulled up to ask you. So um, I really like the meme that you put with it, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so in the past, people were buried with the items they would need in the afterlife. What would you want buried with you so you could use it in the afterlife. Mm. What items would I want to be buried with? Um, yeah. I would probably say some sort of rechargeable device that could play music because I listen to music all day, every day. So something that would give me the ability to continue to listen to music Assuming I couldn't take my dogs, I feel like that's morbid to say I would make my dogs also die to be buried with me in the, to be in the afterlife. But um, I would say some sort of something. So, like, if it worked, you would take, like, your iPod to listen yeah. to music or, like, a and, CD player and all of your yeah. CDs. I would even take, like, a Walkman. I don't care. Anything that would allow me to continue tape cassette. Uh, and maybe like one of those little mini things where you can distill like one little keg of beer or wine at a time. I guess I would take a lot of ingredients. So like I'm really a just lot taking of like ingredients. a whole distillery. And does it like replenish? Like- yeah, does it like replenish in the afterlife? I mean, I you know, don't know. Do you? Maybe, maybe I guess it depends where you go in the afterlife. Yeah, I guess it. <laughs> it <laughs> if you're in hell, then you're like you get. Like Nothing. a can of beer. You like a Bud Light And it's an IPA. <laughs> oh, God, that would be hell. But you would drink it because it's still beer. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. Anyways, <laughs> what, is, what, what would you need in the afterlife? Um, I would need TV and Netflix. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would need TV and Netflix. Yeah, I, I would just need something to entertain myself. And... You know, I would need I, I I too listen to music, but um, 
to be able to listen to podcasts still. That's that's yeah. something I do a lot of audiobooks and podcasts. I still do that all day long. So there's um yeah, I I I would I too would want to be entertained. Yeah. And like a never-ending supply of you know, like of I would beer. I would, I would still need headphones so I could ignore people in the afterlife. Like I don't I don't want to communicate with them there either. So <laughs> Oh my gosh. And this is why, this is why I love you. All right. So this is going to be a really long story. So I'm just going to get into it. I know we usually talk about beer, but we're not going to do that tonight. Um, If you want to see all the beer that Ashley is trying, that's not an IPA. You can go to her. It's um, on untapped. Uh, I did post about it on our Facebook page. So you can see the name. We have a private group on there that I can add you to, but you have to friend me first on untapped. We have one. So thank you, RC. But anyways, you can see each other's activities and whatnot. Um, Lots of local Houston. Maybe I need to do that too. Cause I do try a lot of beers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not all just Houston beers. It's just any beer, any craft beer I try is on there. Or ciders. Oh, mine's out of Bl- Blanco, Texas today. Ooh. It's the Boombox IPA, double IPA. I, um, I went with I went with the, this this beer this week because it has the Boombox, which kind of reminds me of like the seventies, eighties, and you know people walking around jamming to their yeah. Boombox. So you didn't you didn't experience that wonderful time. I had but, a Boombox. Huh? Because I wasn't born in the seventies. I mean, I I didn't have a boombox. Oh, did you have a boombox? Did you walk I, around um, with it? I walked around. And, we did. Um, I listened to uh, like a lot of country music, and back then Billy Ray Cyrus was the big thing, oh, and God. Alan Jackson. And I used to have my little boombox, and I would like kiss the speaker and stuff. They were going to be my husbands, but whatever. They married other people. <laughs> You should see the disdain on her face. Like, psh, whatever. Okay, so um, I am going to start. I I had told I had told Ashley earlier that I was going to actually start this this week with not so much trivia for her to answer, but I wanted to share um, because my story this week takes place in New York and in the sep- in the mid seventies, and I'm going to see if you guys can guess who it is before I do it. Oh, but you already know who it is because it's going to say it on the episode. <laughs> but anyway, you, so you already know that you're listening to this episode and we are going to be talking about David Berkowitz, also known as the son of Sam. And so we Ooh. are going to actually be talking about um, New York at this time. And I wanted to I'm going to share my screen because I do want you to see what I'm looking at. And then we are going to post the, a link to this in our show notes. So please do go check it out because it's really interesting. So this is the insane pamphlet the New York Police Department used to terrorize New York in the 70s. And it says... <laughs> <I'm> so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. This is great, guys. You really got to look at it. This, this was given to tourists as they came came off the plane and into New York. And now New York crime rate in the seventies was hell. This, it was actually called fear city. Um, And so it says, welcome to fear city, a survival guide for visitors to the city of New York. Now uh, at the time, the, the mayor, mayor Abe beam was doing lots of cuts to 
the fire department and ambulance services and the police department. And so police unions gathered together and they put out these these pamphlets. And so as you can see here, Welcome to Fear City. The incidence of crime and violence in New York City is shockingly high and is getting worse every day. During the four-month period that ended April 30th, 1975, robberies were up 21%, aggravated assault, assault was up 15%, larceny was up 22%, and burglary was up 19%. They don't even mention, like, rape or murder, which was really fucking bad. Really, really bad. So... Uh, I like how they end their little rant that says, good luck. And it's got the, the skull in a cloak. Looks very ominous. Um, number one, stay off the streets after 6 p.m. Even in Midtown Manhattan. Can't even imagine that. <laughs> if you walk in Midtown at about 7.30 p.m., you will observe that the streets are nearly deserted. So stay off the streets. Do not walk. Period. <laughs> If you must leave your hotel after 6 p.m., do not go out alone. S summon a radio taxi by telephone or ask the doorman to call you one and wait in the lobby. Don't go walking on the streets. Avoid public transportation. <laughs> Subway crime is so high that the city recently had to close off the rear half of each train in the evening so that the passengers could huddle together and be better protected. <laughs> Won't that make yes. it easier to kill more people? Wouldn't it be crazy to just have to be... Ugh, no. Mm -mm. So, it says, in Midtown Manhattan, you may, at only slight risk, ride the buses during daylight hours only. <laughs> Goddamn. Remain in Manhattan. Don't go outside of Manhattan. Uh, protect your property. At all to like, hold your... It says, safeguard your handbag. If you're carrying a handbag, hold it close to your chest. Conceal property in automobiles. You should still be doing this. This is obvious news to the rest of us, but yep. Number eight, do not leave valuables in your hotel room and do not use the hotel vault because hotel robberies were uncontrollable. Well, if you weren't supposed to keep it on you and you weren't supposed to leave it into your hotel room, where the fuck were you supposed to leave it? You weren't supposed to come to New York City. Oh, got it. Turn around, go home. <laughs> Um, and then be aware of fire hazards because guess what? The firemen aren't going to come and save you. So if you are incapacitated and you cannot get out on your own, you're not going to have anybody to come and rescue you and get you out. So elderly people, you know, you, if you can't walk downstairs in quick, in quick fashion, then uh -uh, don't, don't come. And that's basically what they were telling people to do. But they were saying, hey, we don't have enough police. We don't have enough fire. We don't have enough ambulance workers. We're, you weren't going to be safe. Wow. So if you are going to be there, familiarize yourself with exits and escape <laughs> routes and try to get a room by the fire stairs. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? It says, these guidelines have been prepared and distributed as a public service by the Council for Public Safety. Broadway, New York, New York. Womp, womp, womp. So they had two other pamphlets called If You Haven't Been Mugged Yet, dot, dot, dot. And Who's Next? <laughs> so mm. really good stuff. Um, the other thing I wanted to show you, uh, I'm going to share the screen here, too, that uh, crime rates really were horrible. And it's it might be hard for you to see, but I'm going to highlight where I'm looking. So 1975 through really. Oh, my God. 
if you look um, under murder, I mean, even up until 79 right here, do you see where my mouse is? Mm -hmm. So uh, violent crimes in 1975 were 155,000. Um, in 76, 156,000, almost 157,000. Uh, property crimes were almost a million. There were almost a million property crimes in, in 1976. Um, murder was at about, in 1977, about 1900 um, or so, 1976, 1969. In 1979, there were 2,092 murders, but in 80, there were 2,228 murders. Um, rapes. Oh, sorry. Huh? Go ahead. I was going to say, out of curiosity, what is it? Is it higher or lower in 2019? We'll get down there. So um, it's it's lower. So rapes um, hit an all time high. Jesus Christ. Yes. So in 81, 54, 79, 5,479 rapes. uh, To give it some context, um, uh, in let's say, gosh, it was That's always really high. That's not even really the high. highest number on this chart, guys. No, it's not. So in 1965, there were 2,300 rapes. Uh, so uh, just just a decade later, 5,394. Um, and then if you go down to 2019, um, you have murder, 558 murders. But look at those rapes, oh, highest my. ever. Uh, we'll, 6,583. I'm sorry. Say it again. Oh, I was just, I, because people aren't looking at it as you're talking about, I said we would be posting the link. So if they wanted to look at it, it would be in the, in the notes. In the show notes. Yeah. You know what? And um, let me stop share here. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Bleep, blah, bloop. Yeah. So I was doing, God damn. As I was doing all of the, all of this research, I just was like, what, what did it look like? Like, you know, I we, we see the movies. Mm-hmm. Hollywood portrays Taxi Driver, uh, to give people some context for those those of you who've seen that movie. Um, the uh, Taxi Driver came out in 75, and it didn't... New York didn't look pretty then. I don't know if you remember that movie or not, but, you know, that was, that was De Niro, and it, it just wasn't... It, yeah. it was... It was filthy. It was dangerous. Uh, Giuliani did change it, but you know, to 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 a Listen, great extent, he didn't. I watch enough Law and Order to know I never <laughs> want to go. Okay, there's like dead bodies everywhere. Everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. Um. So I started to research David Berkowitz, and there were a couple of things. Uh, I had to admit to myself, like. Yeah, I know who David Berkowitz is, and I know who son of Santa, Sam is. But, like, I didn't really know. I know that he terrorized, and it didn't last very long. And it kind of, you know, it wasn't, like, a huge number. He wasn't in the double digits as far as, like, murder count. I knew, like, base, like the very right. basics, like, stats on a baseball card. Um, but when I started to do research on this, I was like, dude, this dude's kind of a douche. You know, there's like just a lot about him though. Like, I do not like this guy for a lot of for a lot of reasons. I would look at his picture and I'd just be like, God, fuck this guy. Um, but one of the things that I found on Netflix, which I I I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I recommend it. 
because you end up going down this rabbit hole. So it's a it's a Netflix documentary series called uh, The Sons of Sam, Sons of Sam. And it is about David Berkowitz and the son of Sam, but it's also almost just as much about this this journalist called Maury Terry. And Maury Terry did decades, decades, decades and decades, uh, multiple decades of work <laughs> researching David Berkowitz and the son of Sam. And he gave the and David Berkowitz gave the his very first ever television interview to Maury Terry. And, you know, he hadn't he had not spoken at that point. Um, they have hundreds of letters to one oh. another. And um, so there there a lot of what Maury Terry kind of went crazy about is like because it did drive him it drive him into into a sort of madness. Because once you start going down the rabbit holes, you kind of go down the rabbit holes and then you don't yeah. you can't really see yourself out. Um, so there is sort of a descent into mad, into madness a little bit. Um, uh, but I, I don't want to say that, like, I recommend it because I don't want people to think that I'm buying into the conspiracy of it. And so I'll, I'll get into that a, a, a little okay. bit because, you know, David Berkowitz is responsible for his crimes. So period. Yeah. End of story. And I don't want to fall into like, well, it's Satan's fault. Okay, so we have talked a lot about the satanic panic on this show, and so that uh, has a lot to do with this story um, if if we went down the Maury Terry route. But if you're interested, please do go see. Um, it's on Netflix now. Uh, this, this I've seen this, it. I didn't know that's what it was. I mean, I, I didn't know it was... Sons of yeah, Sam. I didn't know it was about him, like the the guy you're talking about. It's it's really both. There's so much. Yeah. It, they're they're so intertwined, and you, you really see that. Um, yeah. So okay. So as I'm doing this research, I'll just I'll I'll uh, oh, okay. Let me just get into it. So okay. David Berkowitz was actually born Richard David Falco. Oh, that's what? Kind of right? <laughs> I know. Sounds like a murderer. David Berkowitz, not so much. Richard David Falco. <laughs> yeah. Right? Sounds like a super villain. Like yeah, it does. DC yeah. and Marvel. Dave Falco, Richie mm -hmm. Falco, Ricky. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Or like a mobster. Yeah. Anyway, so he was born on June 1st, 1953. Happy belated birthday, Mr. Fuckface. Yeah. And so he was born in Brooklyn and his mother's name was Elizabeth or Betty. It was Betty back then. I don't know. It wasn't Liz. Uh, Broder. And she grew up um, in a, with a poor in a poor Jewish family. And back in during the the Great Depression, she meets this man um tony falco and they have this romance and they get married as one does in that time really you know kind of early and they they start a business and they end up running like this fish market together and so in the middle i mean in the middle of the depression kind of time you know they're like okay 1936 let's let's open up a fish stand and so they so they do that so they were married for mm -hmm. about um, four years when Betty became pregnant. 
Really, Louis? Do you hear He's him? He's just really into the He's story. He's so loud. He's already so into the story. So after a more or less four, year, four years, Betty becomes pregnant and... Um, her, her wonderful husband at this point just decides, you know what? Mm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to be a dad. So I guess he just up and left and he went and shacked up with another woman and that was it. So she was left with a fish market and a little boy, um, and the fish market ultimately suffers because she can't. Sure. do both things by herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1950, Mrs. Betty Broder uh, started a relationship with a man. And so this was um, not David Berkowitz that was born. The first child was not David. Okay. Richard David Falco. That is not the first. That is not him. Okay. So in 1950, Mrs. Betty uh, started a relationship with a married real estate agent named Joseph Kleinman. So three years later, she becomes pregnant with a child whom she names Richard David Falco. And that's confusing as fuck because you have two first names and <laughs> Richard David and then you're named Falco after your sibling's dad who ditched the family. So you're not named Kleinman. That's really, it's just, it's very yeah, it's confusing. Very weird. <laughs> it's very weird. So actually, um, uh, within a few days of his birth, mm. uh, Broder gave him away. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's thought that it has mm-hmm. it has been said that um, Kleinman threatened Joseph Kleinman, this real estate agent who's married, um, said to her, like, listen, I did not sign up to be a father. You're, you know, if you still want me to support you, you are going to have to get rid of this baby. And so she did. And um, it is also written that Mrs. Kleinman knew all about their little situation. Well, all about their affair anyway, and had actually had dinner with Betty. <laughs> wow. And there's there was one rule. You, um, there was one. Someone's calling me right now. There was one rule that like, hey, you can see each other, but you, you weren't allowed to get pregnant. <laughs> okay. And there she did. And so three days after that baby was born, she gave that baby away. And dun, da, 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 the, in, the infant boy was adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz of the of the Bronx. Louis putting his little paw on my arm like, please shut up. Just, you know, you know when, when dogs it. or Why cats are we do doing that. this again? Just stop. <laughs> Pay attention to me. So Pearl and Ethan Berkowitz of the Bronx. Um, they were also Jewish, so he was still being raised in the faith that 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 his mother was. Um, and they they were hardware store retailers. They didn't have a lot of money, but they did have a business. Uh, and they were childless. So he was their only child. And they were a bit older, uh, but not like 50. You yeah. know, I mean, like they were just a bit older, uh, middle age. 
They reversed the order of the boy's first name and middle name. So he became David Richard, and then they gave him their last name. So David Richard Berkowitz. Mm. Did he know he was adopted? So, yes. Oh. I was curious. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, you got to know. So, um, so actually, Pearl and Nathan um, would tell David that... His mother died in childbirth. Oh, wow. And that, what? Oh, I was just saying that's probably best. Well, they were told that that would be the best. They were told, like, hey, just. Yeah. Just tell them this and then they'll, they'll forget all about it. But um, that gave him a sense of guilt. Uh, being being the reason his mother died, like he killed oh, his mother, man. so he had a lot of guilt at a very young age. I mean, he was just a baby, basically being like, "I killed my mom, I killed my mom, I killed my mom." So that's that set something in motion, certainly psychologically in him. Um, and it wasn't until later that uh, he was he was an adult and he found this group who were specialists in recovering uh, or connecting adopted children with their biological parents. And so he said, well, could you find mine even though she died? And I'm like, who told you she died? Like my parents? Well, of course they did. Like yeah. that was so common. And then he ended up. So we'll get to that. I'm, I'm skipping yeah, I'm ahead. I'm so sorry. I was just curious. No, it's okay. So journalist John Vincent Sanders wrote that Berkowitz's childhood was somewhat troubled. You think? Although above average intelligence, he wasn't a great writer, though. He lost interest in learning at an early age and became infatuated with petty larceny and just, you know, casual arson. Mm. Yeah. He Casual. liked to set fires. Uh, he was responsible, it is said. George Carposi wrote a book called Son of Sam, the 44 Caliber King. Um, in 1977, it is, he, it is said that he was responsible for starting over... No. For 1,411 fires. Who was keeping count? Which he kept detailed notes of his, in his journal. Oh, okay. Well, then. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of fires. Neighbors and relatives would recall Berkowitz, Berkowitz as difficult, spoiled, and a bully. His adoptive parents insulted at least one psychotherapist due to his misconduct, but his misbehavior never resulted in legal intervention or serious mention in his school records. Uh, for those of you in New York, he attended public school number 123 and PS77. Whoop, whoop. So at 14, um, Berkowitz's mother, Pearl, adoptive mother, um, was diagnosed with cancer and um, he and she passed away. And his dad was so busy working and worked a lot, six days a week. He didn't spend a lot of time with David. There was just it was just too much for him. And so that. The troubles then increased, of course, but somehow he managed to graduate high school. But he, his, his dad did get remarried, had a second wife. David Berkowitz hated her. Uh, they did not get along together at all. And um, when he graduated high school in 1971, at the age of 17, he joined the U.S. Army. 
and served in Fort Knox. Um, and he in with an infantry division in South Korea. So it's said that in South Korea, this is where he lost his virginity to a prostitute. So um, all all said and done, if if Berkowitz did not pay for sex, he probably would have never had the sex. Yeah. Like That's he sad. just was kind of an awkward fella. So he was already like a bully, like I said earlier before. Um you know, he just, he wasn't like a, a nice guy necessarily. Yeah. He just got into a lot of mischief. Um, and so the army, do you think it made him better? No, didn't really kind of made him even more of a bully. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it, so he actually, um, he actually served uh, for three years. He was with, he received an honorable discharge in 1974 when he found his birth mother, Betty. Now, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna skip a little bit. Um, David Berkowitz has a website, like that he built, or that someone. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's called ariseandshine.org. Ariseandshine.org because he is no longer the son of Sam. Nay, nay, he is the son of Hope. <laughs> oh my god guys you guys gotta oh my god website, like for real okay no, so there's he's to. just so, so so he says ever since i was i am reading his words i wish i could do it i really wish i could do an uh, a new york accent you know um ever since i was a small child my life seemed to be filled with torment I would often have seizures in which I would roll on the floor. Sometimes furniture would get knocked over. And when these attacks came, it felt as if something was entering me. My mother, who has long since passed away, had no control over me. I was like a wild and destructive animal. My father had to pin me to the floor until these attacks stopped. When I was in public school, I was so violent and disruptive that a teacher who had become so angry at me grabbed me in a headlock and threw me out of his classroom. I was getting into a lot of fights, too. Sometimes I started screaming for no reason at all. My parents, and ordered by, my parents were then ordered by school officials to take me to a child psychologist or else I would be expelled. I had to go to the psychologist once per week for two years, yet the therapy sessions had no effect on my behavior. During this period of my life, I was so plagued with bouts of severe depression. When this feeling came over me, I would hide under my bed for hours. I would also lock myself in a closet and sit in total darkness from morning until afternoon. I had a craving for the darkness, and I felt an urge to flee away from people. Occasionally, this evil force would come upon me in the middle of the night, and when this would happen, I felt an urge to sneak out of the house and wander the dark streets. I roamed the neighborhood like an alley cat and would creep back into the house by climbing the fire escape. My parents would never know that I was gone, and he would do this when he was seven years old. He would sneak out like 1 a.m., 3 a.m., and just walk around. I'm sorry. I just want to interject and say I love that you have the ability to translate his website into like so many different languages. I'm fascinated what? by this website. The children are descending upon me. Uh. <laughs> they, they're trying to be quiet. Yeah. 
All right. Um, so he, he says he had thoughts of suicide. Uh, sometimes I spent time sitting on a window ledge with my legs dangling over the side. We lived on the sixth floor of an apartment building. And when my dad saw me doing this, he would yell at me to get back, get back inside. I also felt powerful urges to step in front of moving cars or throw myself in front of subway trains. At times, those urges were so strong that my body actually trembled. I remember that it was a tremendous struggle for me to hold on to my sanity. When I was 14, my mother was stricken with cancer, and within several months, she was dead. <laughs> He's a terrible writer. I had no other brothers or sisters, and so it was just me and my dad, and he had to work 10 hours a day, six days a week, so we spent very little time together. Um, so for the most part, that's just the forces had me. So he says, in 1975, he was alone living in New York City. In 1975, however, I met some guys at a party who were, I later found out, heavily involved in the occult. I had always seen, been fascinated with witchcraft, Satanism, and occult things since I was a child. How did you know about those things? When I was growing up, I watched countless horror and satanic movies, one of which was Rosemary's Baby. That movie in particular totally <clears throat> captivated my mind. Now I was age 22 and this evil force was still reaching out to me. Can you look up what year Rosemary's Baby came out? Because he was not a child when that movie came out. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now I was age. Oh, guess he was. Now I was age 22 and this evil force was still reaching out to me. Everywhere I went, there seemed to be a sign or a symbol pointing me to Satan. I felt as if something were trying to take control of my life. I began to read the Satanic Bible by the late Anton LaVey, who founded the Church of Satan in San Francisco in 1966. I began, innocently, to practice various occult rituals and incantations. Is it innocent if you're practicing Satanism, though? Like, question to the public. If it's Satan... Mm-hmm. That your pre- Satanism is that innocent? If you believe in Satan, that's the question. Like that's already not mm-hmm. innocent. You're not. You can't innocently begin to practice Satanism and uh, think like, oh, that's not going to hurt anybody. I don't know. If you believe yeah, in the Satan, but I think a lot of people don't know the real preaching of Satanism and. They just make a lot of assumptions. I feel like people uh, should there's like. A, there's a satanic I, Bible. I don't know. Have he was you reading read it, it though, because no, I read no, it, and I I'm not a serial it. killer, so maybe he's. Thought <laughs> uh, you guys know. Of, okay, allegedly. Do we know? Do we know? Anyway, <laughs> so he goes on and on. Basically, it doesn't take any, 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 any blame for anything that's happened. His mom died and bloop, blah, bleep. Blah, blah. So then he goes, okay, so bloop, blah, bleep. So he meets Betty. So after a few visits, he actually, before he met her, it was Mother's Day and he had this whole thing laid out and he wrote her this poem like, I'm your son. Oh, that's cute. You'll always be my mom. Yes. I'm Richard. So <laughs> they meet and so she's, she, they, he meets his family and he's Richard to them. He's not David. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not mad. You must have had a good reason to 
put me up for adoption, you must have had a really good reason to let me go. Mm. And she's like, well, actually, this is what happened. He's like, you're a bitch. (laughs) And (laughs) he was like, that sucks. So he did not. He was very disturbed by this. Um, He was he felt that he was unwanted. That's number one. His the most the biggest feeling he had. He was unwanted. And then he had father figures who didn't want him either. So his mother didn't want him. And then he had all these father figures who were like, peace out. Dad, you know, first baby daddy, the second, his dad, the adoptive father who just didn't seem to like really want him, uh, even though they they chose him. Yeah. Um, you know, they weren't all that nice to him. They were kind of like, you were a mistake. Like, you chose me, though. You like. You signed yeah. up for me. <laughs> you wanted me. Mm-hmm. So they weren't like all that great either. So. Um, forensic anthropologist Elliot Layton described Berkowitz's discovery of his adoption and birth details as the primary, this is in quotes, crisis of his life uh, because that's, he had communication with his mother, but after a little while that stopped and he did have communication, but he, for a time with his half-sister Rosalind, um, but really, he just couldn't he he just couldn't really keep in contact with them. It was too it was too painful. He at he said that at a certain point, um, the demons in his head said, you know what, you need to have a steady job. And so he went to go work for the United States Postal Service or like, you you need a job. But so he listened to those those voices and he became a letter sorter. Boop, boop, beep. Hmm. So about a month after he stops talking to his mom, this is when the crimes begin. So the primary crisis thing kind of adds up. Yeah. Right? Like, that makes sense. Satanism or not, that that makes sense, right? Whatever. Yeah. He's, he's I just blaming don't think Satan. he can blame He's Satanism blaming everybody. For he's blaming his he mom. Did. Right. Oh, oh. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. You, you. He doesn't take accountability for anything. He doesn't take yeah. responsibility for any of it. It was the drugs. It was the Satan. It was his parents. It was his mom leaving him. It was his dad not being there. It was all those things, right? Mm. Um. So, <laughs> sad. But he did go to church, church. Like, in when he was in the army, he did find church there. And he was like, yeah. oh, this is fun. But then he was like, not really <laughs> for me. Because uh, he's still Jewish, I guess. Yeah. So... During the mid-70s, Berkowitz started to commit violent crimes early. So he was already doing the arsony. Arson. Arsony? Not a word. Is that a word? Arsony? Arson? Arson? <laughs> I don't know. Sounds Listen, right. Listen, this is a double IPA. Okay. Casual arson is the, is the term. Okay. So He's really bad at this this whole like being a murderer thing, but he so he picks it up and he starts he doesn't start with shooting, he starts with stabbing. And so oh. he mm-hmm. and so he bungled the first attempt at at murder by using a knife. Um he he did always seek female victims. He was more attracted to white women with long dark wavy hair just like his mom's. Um, and all but one of the crime sites involved two victims. 
He infamously committed some of the attacks while the women sat with boyfriends on parked cars, and he seemed to enjoy the activities and often returning to the scenes of his crimes. But, I mean, he lived in, he lived there. So, um, Bergwitz claimed that when he was 22 years old, he committed his first attack on Christmas Eve in 1975 uh, when he used a hunting knife to stab two women in Co-op City. This is in the Bronx. Uh, one alleged victim, a Hispanic woman, was never identified b- by police, but the other was a 15-year-old Michelle Foreman, a sophomore at Truman High School, who he attacked on a bridge near Dreiser Loop and whose injuries were serious enough to be for her to be hospitalized for seven days. He was not suspected of these crimes, um, and soon after, he moved to Yonkers, just north of New York City. Um one of the things that he said about these women, he was like, and she was just screaming. What else was she like, supposed to be doing? I wasn't going to rape her. Oh, I, I was, was gonna just her. going to kill her. I was going to casually kill her. She was screaming so loud. You didn't hear that, but that was my long blink. What a bitch. What a batch. <laughs> what a batch. All right. So let's get it. So those were the his two stabbings. They both lived. He's very bad at this already. He's just very bad. <laughs> He's just very bad. Um, all right. So now we're going to talk about his shooting. So in July of 1976, the first shooting occurs. Uh, uh, the first one that is attributed to the son of Sam occurred in Pelham Bay area of Bronx, Pelham Bay area of Bronx. Yeah. At about 1.10 a.m. on July 29th, 1976, Donna Laria, um, an emergency medical technician who was 18, and her friend Jody Valenti, a nurse, 19, were sitting in Valenti's double-parked Oldsmobile discussing their evening at uh, Peach Trees. It was like a discotheque. Laria opened the car door to leave and noticed a man quickly approaching the car startled and angered by the man's sudden appearance. She said, now what is this? And the man produced a pistol from the paper bag that he was carrying and crouched. He braced one elbow on his knee, aimed the weapon with both hands and fired. Laria was struck by one bullet and killed her instantly. Valenti was shot in her thigh and a third bullet missed both women. The shooter turned and walked away. Valenti survived her injury and said that she did not recognize the killer. She described him as a white male in his 30s with fair complexion, about five foot eight and weighing about 200 pounds. His hair was short, dark and curly in a mod style. Uh, the description was repeated by Laria's father, who claimed to have seen a similar man sitting in a yellow compact car parked nearby neighbors gave corroborating reports to police that an unfamiliar yellow they they would say it was a bug vw bug uh, had been cruising the area for hours before the shooting and years later in 1993 journalist maury terry who i was talking about earlier interviewed berkowitz at the sullivan correctional facility in which he berkowitz admitted that it was himself who shot loria and valenti then in October, uh, Forest Hills Gardens, Queens, 
Um, on October 23rd, 1976, <clears throat> a similar shooting occurred in a secluded residential area of Flushing, Queens, next to Bone Bound Park. Carl DeNaro, a Citibank security guard who was 20, and Rosemary Keenan, a Queens college student who was 18, was, were sitting in Keenan's parked car when the windows suddenly shattered. Quote, I felt the car explode, DeNaro said later. Keenan quickly started the car and sped away for help. The panicked couple did not realize someone had been shooting at them, even though DeNaro was bleeding from a bullet wound to his head. He reported later, he said, start the car, go, go, oh go, after being shot in the head. Real quick, did you say that um, Son of Sam was driving a yellow bug? Isn't that what Ted Bundy drove? Was a yellow bug? Yeah, so did... Is that the, um, like, the car of choice? So did s- somebody else. So, so this goes like, oh, there's a compact yellow car. Well, that yellow car belonged to... John Carr, who was an actual son of a man named Sam Carr. Oh. <sighs> you see what I mean? All the coincidences are just too much. You go down the rabbit holes and it's just too much. Okay. Shot in the head. So, Denaro actually got, yeah, Denaro, go, go, go. I'm shot in the head. I don't even know it. But then all of a sudden, there he is. He has a steel plate in his head. He had to replace a portion of his skull. Neither victim saw the attacker. Um, The police determined that the bullets embedded in Keenan's car were that of a 44 caliber uh, pistol. It's huge. But they could, they were so deformed that they thought it unlikely that they could ever be linked to a particular weapon. Um, Denaro had shoulder length hair. The police later speculated that the shooter had mistaken him for a woman. Mm. He didn't really look like a woman. Keenan's father was a 20 year veteran police detective of the NYPD causing an intense investigation. So they were really determined to find the culprit as with, as with Laria and Valenti, um, there still didn't seem to be any motive and there was little progress. Next was uh, in November. So about a month, just just about a month, a little over a month um, later, there was high school student Donna DeMassey, who was 16, and Joanne Lamino, a student at Martin Van Buren High School, who was 18. They walked home from a movie soon after midnight on November 27th, 1976. That's like a month and a half old. They were chatting on the porch of Lamino's home in Floral Park when a man dressed in military fatigues, who seemed to be in his early 20s, approached them and began to ask directions. In a high-pitched voice, he said, Can you tell me how to get? But then quickly produced a revolver. He shot each of the victims once. As they fell to the ground injured, he fired several more times, striking the apartment building before running away. A neighbor heard the gunshots, rushed out of the apartment building, and saw a blonde man rush by, gripping a pistol in his left hand. Guess who was left-handed and light blonde hair? John Carr. Who drove a yellow compact car. That's too much. Right? <laughs> you could, you could, this is why I'm saying if you watch this searching for the sons of Sam, like it's insane. You're like, God damn it. 
way too many coincidences. Way, way, way. Um, So, uh, and these two girls both survived. One of them was uh, shot in the back and was hospitalized. She was uh, in the neck as well. She was rendered a paraplegic and um, the other other woman survived. They both gave um, descriptions to the police. I haven't hit send on those. No, I haven't. So I'm going to show you. This is going to be a part of uh, the show notes as well. Uh, We usually post pictures. So um, look at all the different police sketches. So these two right here. Those don't even look the same. I mean, those two kind of, but the other. There are seven and only one of them looks anything remotely like him. I mean, just anything like him. But these two right here were like that straight hair and parted to the left and parted to the right. Mm-hmm. Those were that's what the two girls gave to the police sketch artist. So they were like, that's what he looks like. That's the guy we're looking for. He's going to have swoopy bangs. Are all of look those like that. supposed to be him? Like even the ones on top? All, yes. Those were all the police sketches of David Berkowitz or of the Son of Sam killer. Because, you know, he had a 60% success rate in his murders. So a lot of people survived to tell the tale and Mm -hmm. to give police Mm -hmm. sketches. All right. So, um, in fact, when uh, the the DA reopened this case, when the was it the Queens? I, I believe it was Queens. Um, oh god is it queens i get confused with all these these boroughs so when i think it was the queen's da when he reopened this case they re-interviewed these two girls and she's like yeah he was left-handed he he's my right-handed but his left-handed like he came this way yeah but it was she's turned around it's like left-handed and no he had straight hair and he had really weird eyes. And, um, and it, like, it's, it, it's one of those, again, it's one of those things where you're like, God damn, like, it, who's, who's telling the truth? Yeah. So I'm going to show you a picture of John Carr. That's him. Hmm. Oh, you mean like the sketches? That's a picture of John Carr. Mm. Weird eyes. And then that's the sketch. Swoopy hair. Swoopy hair. I've never heard Mm -hmm. of John Carr before in my life. When I've heard about Son of Sam. Isn't that crazy? It's very crazy. And he is literally a Son of Sam. Son of Sam Carr. Anyway... So next, so on January 30th, 1977, at about 12.40 a.m., Christine Freund, God, I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name, a secretary, 26, and her fiancé, John Deal, a bartender, 30, were sitting in Deal's car near the Forest Hills station in Queens, and they were going to go to a dance hall after seeing the movie Rocky, because they just got engaged. Go see Rocky. We're gonna go dance, and she says, "Wouldn't it be crazy? Like, we better get moving." Because, like, wouldn't it be crazy if, like, the son of Sam? Oh like, my god! Why would you bring her? that upon yourself? 
Why would and you three breathe at that, that energy? <laughs> right. And at that point, bam, 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 three gunshots penetrated the car in a panic deal, drove away for help. He suffered minor superficial injuries, but she was shot twice and died several hours later at the hospital. Neither victim had seen their attacker. Police police made the first public acknowledgement that the shooting was similar to the earlier incidents because of the 44 caliber bullets. And so that was the first time they were like, if you know anybody with a 44 caliber gun, that'd be, you know, doing this. So like, seriously, because that, that's not a common, yeah. you no, know, 22 or whatever. Like it was a huge sure. bullet. It's a huge bullet. Um, and that they said the shooting seemed to be targeting women with long, dark hair. So, of course, this is like at a time when people are like, well, should I dye my hair blonde and cut it short? You know, they were so women started to kind of get a little worried. Um, they were leaning towards a connection. But, of course, the public at this point is like they're all connected. Yeah. So it started to get really, really scary. Yeah. Um, composite sketches were released of the black haired um Loria Valenti shooter and then the blonde Lamino Damasi shooter that did not match. So there is two different two different sketches. And uh the police thought at this point that they were looking for multiple suspects because they they did not match. Right. I mean, those sketches looks like there's three or four different people. Five. So, um, yeah, so that's ultimately what it comes down to is five. So um, so then there's the Voskarician shooting on March 8th. Thank you. I said that pretty well, I think. At about... Zuntite. At about 7.30 p.m. on March 8, 1977, Columbia University student Virginia Voskarician, 19, was walking home from school when she was confronted by an armed man. She lived about a block from where um, the, the, the last victim, Freund, Christine Freund, Freund, Freund um, had been shot. In a desperate move to defend herself, Voskarician put up her school bo- books up to her face but the bullet penetrated it and um, she, she was still struck in the head and, and killed her. She was found to be, you know, on the, on the sidewalk and people came around. She was a really beautiful girl. Um, on March 10th, 1977, the NYPD officials held a press conference declaring that the 44 uh, bulldog revolver had fired the shots that killed Loria and Voskarici. And so they were, looking for the same same person um they uh they said the police strongly suspected that the same 44 bulldog had been used in the shootings but that the evidence was actually inconclusive i wonder if they went back and looked at all that all that evidence i wonder what it would show up now yeah um so crimes continue. So going back into 1977, April through July. So in April of 77, um, uh, the Isao and Surinari shooting happened at about 3 a.m. on April 17th, 1977. Alexander Isao, a tow truck operator who was 20, and Val- Valentina Suriani, a Lehman College student and an aspiring actress and model. Um, she was 18. They were sitting in a car belonging to his brother, 
on the Hutchison River Parkway Service Road in the Bronx, about a block from the girl's home and only a few blocks away from the scene of the Laria Valenti shooting. Um, a neighbor nearby heard the shots, four shots, called the police. Um, Suriani, who was sitting on the driver's seat, was shot once and Isau was shot twice, both in the head. So this is just like, ugh. Um, Suriani died at the scene and Esau died in the hospital several hours later without being able to describe his attackers. Um, again, it was a 44 caliber gun, the bulldog. So the, the letters start to show up. So this is May of <clears throat> 1977. The police discovered a handwritten letter, uh, near the bodies of Esau I can't, I don't know if I'm saying ESO, ESO, E-S-A-U, and Suriani, mostly, written mostly in block capitals with a few lowercase letters and addressed to NYPD Captain Joseph Borelli. Um, he was, this was, it was addressed to Joseph Borelli. So with this letter, he revealed the name Son of Sam for the first time. The press had previously dubbed the killer the 44 caliber killer because of the weapon, um, the letter was initially withheld from the public, though. They were like, they didn't want to give him any any publicity. Right. Um, but some of its contents were revealed to the press, and the name Son of Sam quickly replaced the forty four caliber killer. Um, the letter expressed the killer's fruitless efforts to capture him in full with misspellings intact. Uh, the, oh, I'm sorry. Hold on. I got to pull it up on my... It said, oh, my God, it's not letting me. I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back to be interpreted as bang, 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 bang. Ugh. <laughs> Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. Very dramatic. Mm -hmm. That was the final page. Eddie. Oh, boy. Um, but he says, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not. And here's where no one ever says this, but he actually spells woman. We mon like demon, but women. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's spelled like demon, but it's with the W. Yeah. I'm deeply hurt by you call your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat in quotes. When father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped and, raped and slaughtered. Their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention, all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa oh Sam God. is old now. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. 
He Jesus has had Christ. too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh. He, me, hoot, it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life. Oh my blood for pop, blood for papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill anymore. No, sir, no more. But I must honor thy father. I want to make love to, to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to yahoos, to the people of Queens. I love you. And I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bang. Ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. I feel so deranged just hearing that letter. Like, like what? So me hoot, it hurts, sonny boy. I don't even was taken as a Scottish accident version of my heart. It hurts, Sonny boy. Me hoot. Dreaming right now? Like, is this real life? (laughs) The police also hypothesized that the shooter blamed a dark-haired nurse for his father's death due to the too many heart attacks phrase and the facts that Laria was a medical technician and Valenti was studying to be a nurse. Mm. I mean... Oh gosh. Um anyway, so in May of 19 May 30th of 1977, the Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin received a handwritten letter too because that first one did not make it out until later. Um from somebody who claimed to be the 44 caliber shooter and the letter was postmarked early that same day from New Jersey. On the reverse of the envelope, Neatly hand printed in four precisely centered lines were the words blood and family, darkness and death, absolute depravity, 44. The letter inside read, hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your call. I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, (laughs) you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, 
seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say, you will see my handiwork at the next job? Remember, Ms. Loria, thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation. 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. The Duke of Death. The Wicked King Wicker. The 22 Disciples of Hell. John Wheaties. Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. Please inform all of, the, all of the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. J.B., please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Quote, keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. End quote. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Son of Sam. So let's go back to Maury Terry. Listening to these letters. My mind. Okay, so listen to this. Let's go back to John Carr. Okay. Shall we? Yes, let's. So Maury Terry actually grew up in Yonkers and he grew up in, near John Carr. He went to school with John Carr, who they called Wheaties. Because their sister was named Wheat Car. Wheat mm. Car. So John Wheaties. John Carr. Mm-hmm. The Wicked King Wicker. The cars lived on Wicker Street. Yeah. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins. So Maury Terry starts doing some word association. And he decides to like, this is directions to Berkowitz's house or to the killer's house. So he's, they're thinking about, thinking about, think about it. Mm-hmm. Keep, keep, keep drive. Cause like keep drive, think. So he starts like trying to think of all the yeah. stuff. Right. So, uh, uh, drive on, keep, digging and so there's all these things so it sounds like directions to him so it's like think positive so think that's like your head positive is like right so so head right get off your butts get off butts butts so that's like butts like cigarette butts which is like ashes right so get off on ash street knock on coffins coffins are made of what what pine pine mm-hmm. so get off th- go, head right get off on ash knock on pine and Berkowitz lived on pine did he really? he did <sighs> Jesus Christ I never would have been able to put all that shit together like in a million years like never 
They were like, there has to be clues. They ha- there has to be clues. So was it, did he make up those clues? Like, was he just making the loose ends? Yeah. And that's the thing. <laughs> like, that's why, like, I don't want to say go, d- go d- watch this because it's going to make you go, you know, believe in this conspiracy theory. And Jason's like, so do you believe it? Do you believe it? And I'm like, I want you to watch it and tell me you don't see the connection. I haven't it doesn't- seen it, but I already believe it below your it blows your mind yeah it just blows your mind okay um so boop pop beep boop pop beep all right i'm just gonna go so lupa and plus placido shooting in june so on june 26 1977 there was another shooting sal lupo a mechanics helper 20 and judy placido a recent high school graduate 17 um they were just leaving the elephas discotheque um, in Queens, and they were sitting in the parked car when they heard three gunshots through the vehicle. They thought that they would be fine in Queens. They were wrong. Um, uh, Placido was shot. So, sorry, Lupo was wounded in the right arm, and Placido was shot in the right temple, shoulder, and back of neck. But both victims survived their injur- injuries. And I, you know what I didn't mention was that when he was in the army, he was such a skilled shooter. He was like sniper good. But so many people he's tried to kill has survived. Even with... Sh- How many people do you know have been shot in the head and survived? Yeah, There's like lots crazy. of lots of head injuries in this. And they're all like, we're good. So Lupo told police that the young couple had been discussing the Son of Sam case only just moments before. Of course, because the whole city was... Um, neither Lupo nor Placido had seen their attacker, but two witnesses reported a tall, dark-haired man in a leisure suit fleeing the area. One claimed to see him leave in a car and even supplied a partial plate license plate number. Um, so some people say that that David Berkowitz wore his jean jacket that he was kind of famous for being in also jean jacket killer and then there's the army jacket fatigues kind of killer which is the john carr guy because he always wore a green army jacket mm-hmm. and you know so now there's this leisure suit guy Berkowitz did not wear leisure suits so i'm not really sure that's so that's so new york because the leisure suit yeah. um so in july bath beach section of brooklyn where the final killing occurred the first anniversary of the initial 44 caliber shootings was approaching um and uh it and this actually happened in brooklyn so it wasn't in the bronx and it wasn't in queens he went to brooklyn and so on early july 31st 1977 stacy moskowitz a secretary and robert violante a clothing store salesman both 20 were in Violante's car, which was parked under a streetcar streetlight near a city park in the neighborhood of Bath Beach. They were on their first date. Mm. They were kissing when a man approached within 90... Oh, sorry. It says 90 centimeters. That's three feet, people. Mm. Of the passenger side of Violante's car and fired four rounds into the car, striking them both in the head before he escaped. A man named Tony Zeno was a witness to the shooting... Violante lost his left eye. Moskowitz, the only blonde victim of Berkowitz, died from her injuries. That night, Detective John... 
John Falotico, I'm sorry if I messed up your name, sir, was awakened at home and told to report to the 10th Homicide Division of the 60th Precinct Station on Coney Island, and he was given two weeks to work on the Moskowitz and Violante case as a normal murder investigation. Um, if it could not be solved in that time frame, it would be given to the son of Sam Task Force, which I think is strange because... Why wasn't it immediately given yeah. to the son of Sam Task Force? I don't or know. Maybe it's because she was blonde, and they did they not maybe associate it because these other victims were not blonde. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe um, that's a good that's a that's a good hypothesis. I'll take it. So, local resident uh, Miss Davis was walking her dog at the scene of the Moskowitz and Violante shooting when she saw patrol car officer Michael Cantonio ticketing a park ticketing a car that was parked near a fire hydrant moments after the traffic police had left a young man walked past her from the area of the car and seemed to study her with some interest davis felt concerned because she was wielding he was wielding in his hand some kind of dark object she ran to her home only to hear shots fired behind her in the street Davis remained silent about this experience for four days until she finally contacted police who closely checked every car that had been ticketed in the area that night. And wouldn't you know it, Berkowitz's 1970 four-door yellow Ford Galaxy was among the cars that they investigated. In August 9, 1977, NYPD tech James Justice telephoned Yonkers Police to ask them to schedule an interview with Berkowitz. And so they go out, um, the Yonkers police dispatcher who first took a justice's call was Wheat Carr, the daughter of Sam Carr, and the sister of Berkowitz's alleged cult confederates, John and Michael Carr, Mm. the sons of Sam. What a coinkity. See? There's so many. That's what drives me crazy. I'm so invested cons- now. Like I'm going to have to do all kinds of research now. And, and like, I am so obsessed with um, his website. I'm still on his website. You're so, because he's so like, ah, I'm the son of hope. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he, not only was he doing all these killings, but he was also, you know, committing some like, you know, casual arson of his downstairs neighbor's front door just lighting <laughs> that shit on fire you know just no biggie. He ki- you know he said he was hearing voices of sam cars german shepherd and he went and shot that thing after you know writing a note your dog's barking too much and there's just all kinds of things so he was he wasn't like behaving yeah you know what i'm saying he wasn't he trying was like, not to so, get caught is what it sounds like to me Right. So the next day, August 10th, police investigated Berkowitz's car. And so they didn't have a warrant. Um, So some of like everything kind of just it all got tied up with a little bow. And it all seems a little too. Oops, I'm sorry. All too all all too neat and pretty and perfect. Mm -hmm. Like this woman says, oh, I saw a man get a parking ticket. And like, yep, that's Berkowitz case closed. And that's how everything ended. I mean, Everybody thought it was an like it was something was not legit. Yeah, something was off, right? 
So they go, they see, they see a gun in the back seat. They find a duffel bag with ammunition and maps of the crime scenes. There's a letter that's pre-written before the next killing. There's all this kind of stuff, right? So they're like, hey, whose car is that? Oh, that's David Berkowitz. That's the guy who set my front door on fire. Okay, when he walks out, let us know. They're like, oh, that's him. And then they're like, oh, you're under arrest. What took you so long? about time that's what he said what took you so long wow damn like that's god you guys well, suck at your said, job he's like well you've got me <laughs> god that would just make me feel you know god uh at least he had a sense of humor you know the man said and what the detective remembered was a soft almost sweet voice you know like you know, you've got me. You know who? No, I don't. You tell me. The man turned his head and said, I am Sam. You're Sam? Sam who? Sam. David Berkowitz. So an alternate version claimed that Berkowitz's first words were reported like, well, you got me. How come it took you so long? But this is so there's a bunch of different there's a bunch of different reports. Urban legend, I guess all of it. So soon after his arrest, uh, uh, the bu- a building that changed from 35 Pine Street to 42 Pine Street in an attempt to end its notoriety. <laughs> they didn't, you know how people like us would go visit shit like that. So they're like, we don't want people to come. <laughs> um, so he was held in Yonkers for a brief time. And at about 1 a.m., Mayor Abraham Abe Beam arrived to see the suspect personally and after a brief and wordless encounter, he announced to the media, the, the people of the city of New York can rest easy because of the fact that the police have captured a man whom they believe to be the son of Sam. How'd I do? Is that all right? <laughs> Same oh, yeah, to, do. to me. <laughs> um, so he was only interrogated for like 30 minutes and he confessed to everything pled guilty pleaded guilty and every all of that so he was like yeah i did it it was me i do it again boom during questioning berkowitz claimed that his neighbor's dog was one of the reasons that he killed um he said his do- the dog demanded the blood of pretty young girls <laughs> he said that sam mentioned in the letter was his former neighbor sam carr um, berkowitz claimed that harvey carr's Black Labrador was possessed by an ancient demon and that it issued irresistible commands that Berkowitz must kill people. <sighs> I, just, well, I don't just know if the dog the was telling me to kill something that I would necessarily listen to it, even if I thought it was possessed by our, a demon. Our, 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 I feel like I would kind of question my mental sanity at that point. <laughs> So at a press conference in February 79, however, Berkowitz declared that his previous claims of demonic possession were a hoax. But he didn't say that he wasn't a part of a satanic cult. It's just that he wasn't possessed. Mm. There's a difference, Mm -hmm. I guess. So he was, you know what? This is one of one story that the one story that we've done in our season, all of our seasons where this man is still alive, rotting his ass in jail. And he's been in there since he's 23 years old and he's almost 70 and fuck that guy. And he's never getting he is the son of hope cat. He's going to live forever. (laughs) God has forgiven him. 
he's not happy about it. So yeah, he's, he's, um, he said, he said to the mom of Stacy Moskowitz, Stacy was a whore. I'd kill her again. I'd kill them all again in court. And then he'd be like, she'd be like, I can't believe you killed my daughter. Stacy was a whore. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Stacy was a whore. And he would just keep saying it like Stacy was a whore. Stacy was a whore. You're a whore. I mean, it's not this funny, but it so is. Mad. Like, I can't it's imagine so... being on the jury for this case. He is such a piece of shit. Anyway, so he went to Attica, upstate New York prison. Anyway, so he's been all over the place. Um, he is no longer referred to as the son of Sam, but the son of Hope. He in, in 1987 he was he became an evangelical. That's always a hard word for me to say. Evangelical Christian in prison. Um, according to his personal testimony that you can find at arisenshine.org, his moment of conversion occurred after reading Psalm. 34.6 from a Bible given to him by a fellow inmate. He says he is no longer to be referred to as the son of Sam, mm. but to the son of hope. Um, do you want to know what S Psalm 34.6 says? Sure. Do you? I mean. It's up to you. I'm all about, I, all is right. it on his site? Because like, like I said, I've been looking at his site the whole time you've been talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, you can look it up. It's fine. All right. It's all right. You can look it up. Um, okay. I don't feel like looking it up. It's all fine. Right. So, soon after his imprisonment, Ber Berkowitz invited Mal okay, Malaki Martin, an exorcist, oh, to help him shit. compose an autobiography, but the offer was not accepted. Shocker. During later years, D Berkowitz developed his memoirs with assistance from evangelical Christians. There is um, an interview video called Son of Hope. It's actually called Son of Sam, Son of Hope. Um, oh, that was... That was uh, uh, release and then uh and you can actually find the youtube video of it i i did put the link on our show notes so you'll see that um there is a book that that was released as well he is very um involved in the prison ministry but he he was entitled to parole hearings which i don't understand how he gets 365 years in prison but he still gets parole hearings uh, every two years as mandated by state law, though he has consistently refused to ask for his release, but now he is. So the last one was just a couple of years ago. Obviously it's every two years and he's, he is going before the board and saying like, I am, I am, I have atoned for my sins and boop, bop, beep. There he is. So in his 2016 hearing at Shawana Gunk, New York, I don't care if I said that wrong. Uh, Berkowitz stated that while parole was unrealistic, he felt he had improved himself behind bars, adding, I feel I am no risk whatsoever. Most mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the aim is awful. Commissioners denied a parole. Boop, boop, boop. So, um, okay. Back to the Maury Terry satanic cult thing. And I know this is going so long and I apologize, but man, I want, 
if you if you it's only a four part series it's four episodes it's not long but it will make you just ah you don't want to believe it you're at first going this sounds like a bunch of craziness and it goes down this like rabbit hole and oh my goodness but um it's worth it's worth a watch and one of his editors one of the journalists editors maury terry's editor says like can I prove him wrong? No. But they wouldn't always run what he wanted them to run because they're like, you you can't prove it, but I can't prove you wrong because yeah. it is still liable, right? So there's this, there was that fine line that the editors really had, but he had years and years and years of, of support to do the research and to do that. And um, one of the things that they found was that just below uh, in Yonkers, So uh, the cars, the sons of Sam and David Berkowitz did not live far away from each other and down a path through this park that used to be this beautiful park that kids would take field trips there. It was not, it was run down any at that point. um, They, there was like a overgrowth that had happened. And so there was this sort of underground room. I don't know what it used to be, but that's where they're saying there's all these, you know, upside down crucifixes and all this graffiti. And they're like, this is where the chanting happened. And this is where the rituals happened. And they found lots of um, German shepherd uh, carcasses there and things like that. Like that was their dog of choice. And so um, the people who said like, this is, this is where the occult activity happened. Um, and it was just right there. Yeah. Crazy. So, and that was all at the beginning of the satanic panic. So it all really just goes together. Yeah. You know, it's so, it's really hard to discount it, but it's also just so unbelievable at the same time. So um, anyway, Sons of Sam, or Finding the Sons of Sam, a descent into darkness. If you see that on Netflix, please go watch it. It's totally worth it. Um, you're not going to believe 100% of it, but it's definitely worth seeing that this one man for decades spent a lot, many, 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 many years uh, ruining his life, basically, to, to f- attempt to find the truth about the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. And that is my story. All right. God damn, that was long. I'm sorry. But it was so good. Like, I don't think a lot of people are going to know about all the, the brothers and stuff, the actual Sam, you know? The, the Sam Carr, the actual Sam, and yeah. the, you know, John Wheaties. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to do about any of that. Yeah. A little too many coinkydinks. Coinkydinks. Anyway, yeah, what's up? What's up? You know, answers? You want to skip that? <laughs> so long. I'm so sorry. We don't have many. I can read them real quick. Uh, okay. Question of the week was... What would you want buried with you so you could use it in the afterlife? Dev says, all of my books. And do the dead need moisturizer? Because I want that too. Sarah. Good point. Sarah Sarah says, my Kindle with the full library and its charger. Chapstick too. RC says, all the barley wine. Amen to that. (laughs) Um, I like that. 
Jesse says, my yarn, my crochet hooks, my felt and sewing supplies, and a big comfy couch with a large monitor and computer so I can still watch Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Twitch from the afterlife. Duh. And then <laughs> Catherine says, a fan, a fluffy pillow, and a fuzzy oh God, blanket. A um, and then on Instagram, Mrs. MZ3 said, headphones so she could continue to listen to podcasts. One of them being ours. Hey, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Um, and so those <laughs> are the answers. I don't know if Glenn's alive because he hasn't commented on any of our stuff in a while. Um, so Glenn, if you're alive, hi. Hi, we miss you. Don't you don't know who Glenn is. He's one of our, our, our fans from across the way. Across the pond. Yeah. So. Yay. Anyways, those are the answers to the question of the week. Thank you. We post one every week, so be sure to answer, send them, send suggestions to us, story ideas, messages, whatever you want. We're on all the things. Tell your friends. Don't tell your friends. It's whatever. I'm going to do my next story in my whole country accent. Just the whole story is just going to be, <laughs> it's just going to be me talking like this. You don't want to miss it. I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. Don't don't come to my next episode and get pissed because I don't do it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I will be. I will be. I mean, be. if you want to send me money, then I'll send you an episode just <laughs> for you. Uh, just shoot the page a message and uh, I will make it happen. <laughs> She'll leave you a voicemail on your phone. Mm -hmm. You have reached. You have reached the voicemail box. A case file. Okay. <laughs> Bless your heart. Mm. All right. Well, everybody, we love you so much. We'll see you next week. But until then, please be kind to one another. All right. We'll see you. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.